world of e-commerce can be tricky, and that's why you need the experts to help take you to the next level. This is Delivering E-Commerce, and this is Chris Parsons. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Delivering E-Commerce. I'm your host, Chris Parsons, and I have the great pleasure today of introducing to you Steve Dennis. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. So, Steve, um, I read the original version of your book, uh, Remarkable Retail, and then the now um, up revamped version, which I, I mentioned to you earlier that I actually read over the course of the three days on the weekend. And uh, uh, God, I love it. But before we dive into the book, what I do with all my guests is I have them explain their journey, um, how you got to where you are today. Um, I think uh, one of the things I love about doing that is is people need to understand the to understand the ups and downs of retail and the highs and lows and and it just really puts it into perspective for people when they hear great stories from from folks like yourself. So if you would love to start there, that'd be great. Sure. Well, it's uh, I don't know if anyone could really follow my particular career path because it's been kind of twisting and, and turning. But um, after I got out of business school, I worked for a couple of years um, at a large consulting firm. And then spent a few years in the food industry. But um, in the early 90s, I ended up joining Sears Roebuck and Company. I wasn't necessarily looking to get into retail. It was really just kind of a combination of factors that made me think it was an interesting opportunity. And then I've really been in retail ever since, almost, uh, I guess it's about 30 years now. But one thing I think it's a little bit different about me is I've had this kind of weird variety of different roles and working in different categories. Um, at Sears, I held like nine different jobs in 12 years, uh, working on the finance side, operations side, general management side, marketing side. Um, my last role, or my second to last role there was heading up multi-channel integration, which was a very uh, was pre-omni-channel, but that was kind of what we were pointed to. And then I was the um, the head of strategy. And then I moved down to Dallas, where I am now to be the chief strategy officer at the Neiman Marcus Group. So after spending time working in the more moderate market, then I got into luxury and fashion and uh, got more into customer analytics, as well as a lot of the omni-channel, multi-channel stuff. And then for the last, I guess it's about a dozen years now, I've been out on my own doing strategy consulting for retail, as well as writing and speaking on retail innovation. So it's kind of a a, a diverse path, I guess, to, uh, to what I'm doing today. It was definitely not planned necessarily this way, but I'm pretty happy with the way it's turned out. I think that uh, that diversity allows for you to have a different perspective um, from other retailers, because if you've just done retail, uh, you you end up having a specific bias or lens to it. And from your diverse past, it allows you to give a very thoughtful approach to it. And you can see that come through as you as you read through the different chapters, how you have this more holistic view of, of retail than a lot of folks that I've I've watched on stage or of past books that I've read. And and I appreciate that about um, about reading the book over the, the last few days as well. So uh, let's let's talk about that book. How did you come up with the concept and what motivated you to um, to get all of these ideas into uh, a very structured manner? Well, I've had it in my head for a while that I would write a book. Um, I know sometimes people say they have a book in them. Uh, I like writing, and so uh, I thought at some point I would write a book. I just didn't know what the heck it was going to be about. So it took me a little while 
to figure that out. And actually, I had some false starts on a couple of other concepts, I don't know, seven or eight years back. But what really got me to the point where I could write this book was I started to do more speaking. And, you know, when you get asked to speak at a conference, you have to figure out what you're going to talk about and what the story was. So I got a chance to really uh, kind of coalesce some of my ideas largely through doing keynote speaking, um, some workshops, that that kind of thing. And I, I started to both dissect what I thought some of the key forces were in retail that got us to where, uh, well, where, where we are a few years ago and kind of where we're headed. And then I also started to put together this, this framework that I call the eight essentials of remarkable retail, which is really some of the things that I learned when I was in the corporate world, some of the things I started to apply in my consulting practice, but, but mostly it was, it was helpful for me to kind of explain to people what, I don't want to say the steps are because it's not really a sequential path, but what are those kind of key ingredients to, to retailers that, that really um, stand out from the crowd. The, the other thing I was going to say is I really, and this goes back, I don't know, probably, um, it, you know, kind of emerged during my Sears days was one of the things I talk about in the book is the collapse of the middle. And what I started to notice when I was at Sears, you know, 20 years ago was that it was getting harder and harder to be successful um, kind of in this middle ground where you're not strongly to the value side of the equation. Um, or on the other hand, you're not really doing anything particularly differentiated from a product or, or service standpoint. So those ideas were kind of germinating in my mind. Um, and then when I got to Neiman Marcus, I was kind of seeing this the same thing in the department store space, that department stores were continuing to struggle, except for the higher end players like, like Neiman's and Nordstrom and Saks. So, you know, I just kind of kept probing that on my own and seeing that play out with, with clients and, and writing about it and speaking about it. So at a certain point, it started to coalesce, and then I just had to sit down and write the damn thing, basically. <laughs> and, th- and then you wrote it, and you released it um, probably two years ago now, and then COVID hit, and then you you had the foresight to go in and rewrite some of it. Um, how did how did that journey start to happen? Well, I guess a couple of things. Some of it is uh, probably pretty egocentric, and and some of it hopefully is more useful for people. <laughs> um, one of the things I was worried about and was really at the core of a lot of my speaking and consulting, and then ultimately ended up in the first edition of the book, was around this idea that you can't really get away with being even very good anymore, that you really have to perform at a much higher level, what I call to be truly remarkable. And, you know, as I looked at what was happening to retailers that were losing their way, losing market share, in some cases, closing lots of stores or even going bankrupt, um, I was really worried that some of these retailers that are struggling or, you know, just kind of average performers didn't realize the degree of strategic change they needed to make to stay stay relevant, in some cases to stay in business. So when I wrote the book, some of it was to try to, you know, put my ideas into one place that could be consumed by more people than just, you know, could hire me as a consultant or would see me speak at a conference. Uh, but it was really a call to action to, um, to take more aggressive change. But I had the sense that pre-COVID, Many of these retailers had three, four, five years, perhaps, to to put this transformation in place, and then COVID really just collapsed those timelines. So, um, so the fundamental advice in the book is really in the second edition is really not materially different 
than the first. Uh, but I needed to really update it for what transpired because um, really is a new starting point and so much changed in such a short period of time that I wanted the the starting point to really make more sense and mm-hmm. frankly deal with some of the collateral damage from from COVID. Uh, but then I also added some things that are really particular to COVID that you know maybe weren't um, anticipated or were such so accelerated that it was worth spending more time on it. Yeah, and you you touch on the the concept that a lot of these retailers that may have gone out of business during the COVID period were were essentially on that path of going out of business already. This just accelerated um, them being out of the market now. Yeah, actually, in, in some cases, you could even make the argument that COVID helped some retailers 100%. stay in business that wouldn't otherwise. Um, and And I say that because, at least in the United States, there was so much um, stimulus from the government and in some cases, distortion of spending to certain categories. So while there's absolutely a bunch of retailers, particularly in the apparel and accessory industry and the the luxury industry that got hit very, very hard and, and are still recovering, um, there were some that got a little bit of a gift. Um, so, you know, the dust is still settling. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not out of COVID obviously completely, and Mm -hmm. there's a lot to, to still, happened. But um, yeah, I mean, if you look at the retailers that, I mean, I, you know, I'm not trying to be too smart alecky about it, but I often say that most retailers that are in trouble today, watch the last 20 years happen to them. You know, a lot of the yeah. things, particularly in the department store arena, uh, you know, I mean, you know, I joke around that way back when I was in, at Sears and I've been gone from Sears since 2003. So 18 years ago, it's a long time, right? Yeah. A lot of the stuff that we were looking at, at Sears in terms of the U.S. being um, overstored, the decline of malls. I mean, all these these trends have been occurring for many, many years. A lot of the um, interest in buy online, pick up in store, those sort of things like that, that didn't get invented during COVID. Um, you know, many retailers have rolled that out many years ago. So I think COVID was kind of a wake up call um, for a lot of retailers, the good news is it forced them to take in, you know, to take, um, action on some of the innovation that perhaps they were not spending enough time on or were piloting. And, you know, they got it out of kind of the pilot stage into real stage. So, so that was good, but I get back to the fundamental question of why it takes a crisis for retailers to innovate. I mean, that's, that's really on a go forward basis, something that retailers really have to understand because you don't, you don't want to have a crisis like COVID or, or something like that be the motivation for you to close the gaps with your competition and hopefully build some um, real competitive advantage long-term. Yeah, I agree. I, I was having a conversation with Drew Green just the other day about uh, Indochino and how right. they have the whole showrooming model and they were kind of being innovative and, and changing the retail experience. Um, and to touch on your term of harmonized retail, um, they were they were working really well towards that that objective and then COVID hit and they actually thrived through COVID because they were already making this transformation so coming out of it they're actually coming out of it strong versus Mm -hmm. you know some retailers are just figuring out what that harmonized omni-channel experience even over the last 18 months is going to look like in the future and they're still doing that and as people are getting to store back to store back to malls I, I feel I'm afraid for a number of retailers that haven't taking the 18 months to really ramp that up and have just been um, maybe just taking advantage of, of government funding and um, and they're, they're, they'll be in trouble in the next few months as consumers are, are definitely changing their shopping habits. 
Yeah, I actually think that there's a danger that, um, you know, I'm seeing a lot of stories now about how traffic is starting to go back to the malls, go back to certain department stores, go back to certain retailers that have been struggling for a long time. And I'm actually worried. I mean, it's it's great. I mean, I'm happy to see uh, people go out and spend. And, and obviously, that has important impacts on employment and, and all sorts of residual effects. So that's great. But from a strategy standpoint, I worry that some of these folks think that, oh, okay, well, this means I'm okay. And, you know, they're not. <laughs> when it comes down to it, uh, you know, they're they're benefiting from stimulus or they're benefiting from easy comparisons or they're benefiting from pent-up demand and and those sorts of things. But if you look, you have to really look at the underlying trends and many of them, um, you know, are unfavorable for some of these players and and they're not changing enough. And if they don't change quickly, uh, we'll get through this, you know, six month, nine month bounce, and they'll still be fundamentally where they where they were going into COVID. Yeah, that's that's a great point. They they will be um, coming to a new realization nine months where they they think they've got this false sense of you know we're going to be fine because people are going back to the store, and then all of a sudden the data is going to look quite different nine months after the love affair of shopping in store is is wearing off again. Hey, let's talk about a couple of concepts that you you touch on and. And maybe it was quotes, and I don't, I can't remember if it was a direct quote from you or you touched on it from someone else, but concept of mobile. And now it's not, you're just shopping on your phone, but you now live on the phone. I'd love for you yeah. to t- touch on that topic. Well, I think it's one of the most profound, you know, maybe it's a little bit obvious, but I think it's one of the most profound things that that's happened over the last 10 years is how smart devices have really been kind of the connective tissue between this this e-commerce and physical world. Um, one of the things uh, I got into a little bit on an article I wrote for Forbes recently is this idea of the hybridization of retail. And if you go back, certainly to the mid or, 19, or late 90s, you basically had the physical world and direct-to-consumer, which is mail-order catalog, eventually became e-commerce, as very separate things. So if you wanted to go shopping if you're happy shopping online while you did that from your home or office, for the most part, it was a very intentional thing. We had a computer at home. We had a computer at our office. Maybe we had a laptop. We went to Starbucks or some coffee shop, but, but going online was a fairly intentional thing, but smart devices started to change that. We can be shopping, researching, you know, things that are related to the whole customer journey pretty much anytime we want. We're no longer tethered to a particular place or, a very deliberate decision. So the blending and blurring of the lines between digital and physical really started to accelerate as smart devices became more ubiquitous. And of course, as I say in the book, and I'm sure other people say, you know, it's not necessarily a great thing that we are constantly connected, but the vast majority of consumers um, are not very far from their smart devices, a good chunk of their, their time. So that just fundamentally changes the the way um, that consumers shop, and it therefore fundamentally changes the way retailers have to position themselves from a marketing standpoint, from a integration standpoint, to respond to those changing needs. Yeah, and I mean, ultimately, the phone is such a utility now. It's not just a phone. Obviously, you can shop on it. You you can manage your weight loss goals um, with with your phone as well. 
Hell, you can use it as a back scratcher if you wanted to. But <laughs> right. that's, that's why it's so um, integrated into our lives now. And I, there's all kinds of debates whether we spend too much time on our, on our devices, but it's no longer just to, to call mom. It's there because it has all of these utilities that make your life easier in one place. So it's, I don't think if you, you talked years ago, I remember uh, having my mom when we were sitting in front of the, t- the TV as kids, they're like, you're getting too much screen time. Yeah, because I was consuming, you know, Looney Tunes. And now right. um, I'm on my screen, but I'm, I'm listening to your book or I'm <laughs> digesting and networking with people on LinkedIn. So it's a quite different uh, dynamics with, with a mobile device now than the screen time that we used to have when we were much younger. Um, sure. And I, and I think that the, uh, one of the things that I heard, um, it's probably a couple of years old now that, that Google was talking about was, you know, when we used to talk about, for example, you know, the, the so-called driveway decision, you know, when I, when, you know, whether I was at Sears and Neiman Marcus or, or working with a client, you know, what was that, you know, if you were in the business of selling whatever shoes, hammers, what was that thing that was going to, you know, have the consumer make the driveway decision to go to your store first or make sure that they visited your store that obviously in the, in the age of e-commerce started to be not so much a physical thing that you had to do, but driving traffic to, to your website. But when you start to have mobile devices, um, you know, again, it's, it's this place where the best location is often the way you show up on a consumer's mobile device. The Google research that I found really interesting was saying that, um, traditional loyalty to certain brands has been fraying because of the way mobile is injected. So if you think about, oh, I was going to go, you know, I want to go buy a hammer. My favorite place to buy tools is Home Depot, but you actually have to get in the car and make that decision. It's much more of an invested kind of decision. You make the decision, you're going to spend the time, you're going to go into the store, wander around, find somebody to help you, but it's a pretty big deal. In this mobile world, if you think you might want to buy a hammer, you know, it takes no time at all to search for best hammer, best price closest to me, you know, any of these kinds of things, which may still result in you deciding to get in your car and drive to Home Depot. But it might cause you to go, well, actually, here's tools.com or some other website, and I could actually get it for cheaper and they could just send it to my house. So even though you might have these brand preferences in the moment, they might be eroded buy a more convenient option or a lower priced option or some other feature or benefit that maybe you didn't even think about. So that's another different way um, or a way that consumer journeys have really, really changed that I think, frankly, not enough retailers completely understand because they're so used to the way they acquired their best customers maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. And that's not necessarily the way you're acquiring and retaining and growing customers today. No, I, I agree. And, you know, hopefully when people do that search for a hammer, what they're going to get as a result from a home hardware.ca, um, that's the, that's the site that I'm managing, Steve. And uh, basically we, we are really focused on that mobile experience. We've seen such a shift over the last, you know, three years on the amount of consumers uh, coming to our website through a mobile device and not only yeah. just coming to our website, but how they're engaging with different tactics, the social media, the email campaigns, they're consum- consuming them on, on a mobile first um, versus going to the desktop. You know, you wake up in the morning, as soon as you, you wake up, you're, you're going into your inbox and you're checking those, 
those communications through either friends or different retailers that have messaged you and you're not really waiting until you get to the office to sit in front of your, your laptop or, or tablet. Um, yeah. And that, and that's been changing, I think very, very rapidly for a while. And I think the retailers that understand that and the, and the brands more broadly that understand that have, have taken advantage of it, but it's a very different way, right? If you're used to uh, trying to drive traffic to your store, you know, having salespeople or, or whatever is the primary way to provide information and to close that sale. Certainly that mm -hmm. still happens. I'm not saying like that is, that's not going away uh, for the most part, but, but yeah, the ability to gather information, you know, be influenced by, I mean, I still think it's kind of amazing um, that so many people, myself included, will be influenced about what restaurant to go to or what hotel to stay in by people we've never met, right? We'll go to, yeah go to Yelp or TripAdvisor or whatever and, and look at those reviews, you know, which is a entirely different way of being influenced about what retailer you're going to go to or what brand you're going to buy than, than the past where it was advertising or, or word of mouth, or I'm going to go to four different stores and talk to the salesperson and probably buy whatever he or she, you know, whoever I trust the most or whoever provides me the most information. Again, that still happens, mm -hmm. but it's much less important in, in many customers' journeys. Yeah. What, one of the concepts I would love for my audience to, to hear from you is, you know, as I was going through the, the, the book and we're talking about the different projects that a retailer would have on their docket and how they prioritize them. One of the parts that really resonated with me is after you've, you've prioritized all of your projects and basically what are you going to be as a retailer when you get these done? Are you going to just be mediocre or are you going to be remarkable? And I, I yeah. couldn't, I was just like, Oh my gosh, you, how, how often do you go in and you, you know, you pitch for your specific project in your area. So e-commerce for my case, but then, you know, a merchant is, you know, advocating for the project in their area. That's going to make their lives easier. But ultimately those siloed projects, are they, what are they multiplying to? What are they getting to from hmm. a customer centric approach? And when we start to, if we define what remarkable is, maybe that shifts and changes the projects that I'm approaching uh, our leadership with, or maybe it changes what merchandising or logistics to, to have that end goal of being remarkable. And, and how do you define that? So I love that concept of being memorable. Can you tell me how you came up with that concept and, and laid that out? Well, a fair amount of um, the language and ideas that I have around remarkable, I, I stole liberally from my friend, Seth Godin, uh, who wrote the book purple cow, which I would definitely recommend. Um, but the, the fundamental idea with, with being remarkable or being, being memorable is to realize that what's changed so much over the last 20 years is, you know, we used to rely on having exclusive product or having more information than the customer had or having the best physical location and, and a lot of these things and e-commerce and, and just digital technology has changed all that. So the things that used to be scarce or real competitive advantages often aren't competitive advantages anymore. So, so you have to realize that, you know, this is the higher bar to, to, um, achieve, to be able to get the customer's attention in the first place. When you think it's just about how much competition for people, you know, you were talking about like, you know, the dual screening and just, you know, there's a barrage of information. We're overloaded with information. So mm -hmm. just getting noticed in the first place 
is increasingly difficult. But even if you get noticed and customers basically understand what you have to offer, how do you win their business? And in most cases, the bar continues to be raised. So um, one thing is just to really, like you say, is to be able to define what that looks like. Because in most categories, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where people might get confused about these great increases coming out of COVID, if everybody's growing 40%, you're not necessarily growing market share or growing share of wallet. So one of the things that Seth says is that people don't switch merely for very good. In other words, if, if somebody has got that customer's business and you're trying to win it profitably, you're going to have to really outperform them. So you have to define what that looks like. And I, what I find too often is we're very focused on making things better or optimizing, but you can make things better and still not move the dial. So defining what remarkable looks like in terms of what it's going to take to win, grow, and keep the customers you need to to drive your business is essential. That may look very different for um, you know different kinds of retailers. The other thing I think that's part of it is um, just thinking also about what's become table stakes today, and by that I mean what is just you know if you're not doing them well you're not even in the game. And again, because of largely because of digital technology, you know, customers can get plenty of information. Customers can find the best price. Customers can, can get reviews. Customers expect um, easy checkout and different payment. You know, so many of the things that weren't even around a few years ago now have become just basic expectations. And so if you don't meet those expectations, you're not even in the game. Um, but you don't want to confuse meeting basic expectations with what it takes to be truly remarkable and, and stand out. Yeah. And, you know, the thought I had, I actually took a note of this when I was going through the book and you talk about that concept of, of being remarkable. And if we were to get alignment on what remarkable looks like when we, when we finally get there, the, the opportunity you have to do is, is also think about your retailer and your competition. What are they trying to achieve? Like if, if your standard rate now is to try to, I'll use ourselves as, as home hardware. If we're looking at the benchmark that Lowe's and Depot and Ace Hardware have set, <clears throat> and we want to be better than them, knowing that they're on the same journey as well. So right. what, what does two, three years look like? It's not just catching up to them today. It's where, where are they going in that same time frame, and how do you leapfrog that? And that's, that part is the exciting part for me because from a digital perspective, there's so many um, components that we can add to our mix, whether it be clienteling or artificial intelligence, uh, virtual reality rooms. But we, we foundationally have a lot of work to do to get there. So it's kind of catch up and how to exceed within a short time frame. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly hard to, uh, I guess I'd say two things about it. One is it is a moving target. So particularly if it's going to take you a year, two, three years to bring some of these initiatives to life, the competition probably isn't standing still. So you have to um, really be mindful of that. And, and in some cases, it's just guesswork. But I think the other thing you have to be careful about if you're a smaller player or, you know, like in your case, you've got a, a different operating model with, with dealerships versus um, controlled national kind of chain is to try to also appreciate the things that you can do perhaps that are, are unique. Um, that Home Depot, Lowe's, others might not be able to do um, because of the way they look at the business or because they're constrained by 
their operating model. So I often say, you know, whether it's independent retailers or dealers or franchises or whatever, that local ownership um, can often be something really powerful compared to some of the big national chains, um, you know, that are going to emphasize more scale and efficiency. Again, you you have to be able to match up with them on a lot of their capabilities, but then what are those one, two, three things that you can do that you can really own that customers really value? So that might be, you know, unique local assortment or better customer service or ties to the community or, or you know, I'm not, <laughs> I don't, I haven't, I haven't gone in and, you know, to dissect that, but I think those are often the kinds of things to look for because you don't want to get, you know, you don't want to try to like out Amazon, Amazon, out Walmart, Walmart, out Home Depot, Home Depot, because, yeah. you know, they're going to, their sheer size and power um, gives them a lot of advantage, obviously. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Hey, Steve, how, how can my audience get connected with you if, if uh, they're looking to um, leverage you as a consultant, watch you speak somewhere? How, how, how can they connect? Well, generally, uh, the two best places are uh, my website, which is Stephen with a V, P as in Peter, Dennis. Com. I'm also pretty active on Twitter, LinkedIn, and um, other social media at Stephen P. Dennis. So um, pretty easy to find. And, um, uh, you know, it's uh, I, the more the more timely things I generally kind of post on social media. I also am a senior contributor for Forbes. So if you Google Forbes and Steve Dennis, you can find me there and see some of my latest articles. Perfect. And then the, I guess my last question before we just wrap this up or or not necessarily question, but comment. You're also very active, as I mentioned, on other podcasts, and you you host one with uh, Michael LeBlanc. You want to let the audience know about that as well? Yeah, we've been doing uh, the Remarkable Retail Podcast for, I guess it's uh, we're into our third season now, so I don't know where we are, episode 45 or something like that. So, um, yeah, we talk about, um, which is available on all the different podcast platforms. So uh, Michael and I... Um, first season or two, we're really kind of unpacking a lot of the concepts in the book. Um, but we're getting into new things as well. We have guests on, um, sometimes CEOs of, uh, interesting, remarkable companies, other, other times analysts and, and so forth. So have a good time, time doing it. And, um, uh, we're, we're actually doing it bi-weekly now until the fall when we'll be going back to a, a weekly schedule. Fantastic. So I hope that uh, the audience has found value in this this last 30 minutes. I look forward to them giving me feedback because I'm sure a lot of them will go out and, and purchase your book and we can have a dialogue about it. I will put comments and links below um, the podcast so people know where to, to find your contact information and also uh, where to go to uh, purchase the book. And I greatly appreciate the, uh, the 30 minutes with you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it as well, Chris. Thank you. You've been listening to Delivering E-Commerce. It's our passion to have on leaders and suppliers in e-commerce from around the globe, setting you and your strategy up for the next level. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review, and we'll be back soon. Connect with Chris on LinkedIn at Chris Parsons on LinkedIn and Spotify at Delivering E-Commerce or on YouTube at Chris Parsons Delivering E-Commerce. Till next time, this is Delivering E-Commerce.